0: Hello and welcome to Abemus Papam, episode 214, Julius II. So today's pope is one of those popes who are so larger than life that even a long episode would not do them justice. And this episode is going to be briefer than he deserves and probably briefer than he would want. We've met our pope today. His name is Giuliano della Rovere. He's the nephew of Pope Sixtus IV. He was born in 1443, and when his uncle became pope, he was named a cardinal in 1471 at the age of 28. He was a rough and warlike man, one who didn't necessarily practice the virtues of chastity and poverty, but who sought to be a renaissance prince. And while not as scandalous as his cousin Cardinal Riario, also named a cardinal in 1471, his life did not point towards holiness. His uncle's nepotism enriched Giuliano, who was named the archbishop of half a dozen places, the abbot of half a dozen more, and received the revenues of a good chunk of Christendom, thanks to his uncle's generosity, became one of the richest of all the cardinals. His activity as a cardinal is much more like that of a secular Renaissance prince than a prince of the church. He was entrusted with the army of the papal states in 1474 in an expedition against a rebellious town. He was then appointed legate to France and entered into difficult negotiations with the king of France and other nobles, the end of which found him respected and allied with many of them. He was a natural diplomat and a natural warrior. He returned to Italy, where he began to build a power base for himself outside of Rome to rival the already entrenched Roman families of the Colonna and the Orsini. This came in handy when his uncle died in 1484, and Cardinal Giuliano had to fend for himself. As we've already heard, during the pontificate of Innocent VIII, it was Cardinal Giuliano who swung the votes to the new pope, and it was Cardinal Giuliano who was running the show during the first half of his pontificate. Now, towards the end of his pontificate, the cardinal's influence waned, and he distanced himself from Rome. And this distance continued with the election of Alexander VI Borgia, who defeated Giuliano and his faction of the cardinals outright. Now, in Alexander VI's conflict with France, Cardinal Giuliano was decidedly against the Pope and for the French. He snuck off to French territory and and accompanied Charles VI to Rome in December of 1494. He made the argument, loudly yelling up to the Pope uh, on the walls of the Vatican, as it turns out, that Pope Alexander VI was illegitimate and should resign his office. But while his support for the King of France did him good while he was in Italy, he realized he should probably follow him out of Italy and keep to French territory since he was so opposed to the Pope. However, he eventually reconciled with the Borgias, but it was never a very happy reconciliation. There weren't open hostilities, and at least they got along without fighting, but that was about it. But in the early 1500s, tensions flared again with the family, and specifically with Alexander VI's son, Cesare Borgia. When Cesare Borgia left Rome before the election of Pius III, Cardinal della Rovere snuck in. He participated in that election, and then a few weeks later, on October 30th, 1503, had to participate in another one with the sudden death of Pope Pius right after his coronation. Now, this conclave was looking to go Cardinal della Rovere's way. He got to the Spanish cardinals and got them on his side by making a deal with Cesare Borgia not to dispute his own territory in northern Italy and to marry his nephew to Cesare's daughter. It was a mistake for Cesare. Cardinal de la Rovere was elected Pope and kept his own name, and thus became Pope Julius II, but he did not keep his bargain with the Borgias. His antipathy was so deep that he refused to use the same apartments that Pope Alexander VI had used as Pope due to perceived contamination. And on November 29th, 1503, Cesare was basically betrayed and locked up in papal custody. He was later shipped off to the King of Aragon, King Ferdinand, And when he escaped there, he was no longer a major political figure, but a mercenary for hire. And we won't hear much more about him in this story. Pope Julius II kept his baptismal name in part because he was named for the Roman Emperor Julius Caesar. His papacy was inspired by the firm, active, and ruthless nature of a Roman emperor. And from the very beginning, he worked to solidify the political situation of the church and his own political situation. This happened internally with his appointment of new cardinals three days after his elevation to the papacy, which included one of his nephews. In time, he would create four of his nephews as cardinals, and he would marry a lot of his nieces to members of the powerful but competing Orsini and Colonna families to again help stabilize the Roman political situation under the auspices of the Della Rovere family. He likewise pursued a number of economic reforms for the papal states, which helped stabilize the economic situation. He then turned his attention to the papal states themselves. With all the chaos of armies marching back and forth across Italy, several had turned away from the authority of the papacy. So Pope Julius brought them back into line with both spiritual and physical force, threatening excommunication and military options. This was particularly the case with the city of Bologna, which capitulated to the pope, and who spent the winter of 1506 and 1507 there, reestablishing direct papal control and even building a fortress to garrison papal troops there. When he returned to Rome the following spring, his procession into the city was very much like that of the triumphs of Julius Caesar when he returned from conquering the Gauls or the Britons. His next target was Venice. In the chaos of the Borgias, Venice had seized certain papal territories in the north and central of Italy, Rimini and Ravenna and Romagna. and They were also refusing to allow the bishops who had been appointed in their territory to exercise their full authority. So Pope Julius II negotiated a league against Venice with the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian, the King of Spain, and the King of France. This league was called the League of Cambrai. Now the fighting started when the Emperor Maximilian traveled to Rome to be crowned Holy Roman Emperor in St. Peter's Basilica, a normal thing that Holy Roman Emperors do. But on his way, the Venetian army blocked his advance. So while still in northern Italy, he proclaimed himself Holy Roman Emperor, and Pope Julius II recognized this officially, which is kind of the first time that's ever happened without a coronation. Then the alliance came together and attacked venice directly the decisive battle happened at the battle of agnadello and there french troops defeated a venetian army in 1509 but the league suffered a setback a few months later with the defeat of the imperial army at padua the imperial army was forced to retreat back across the alps as france seemed to grow in strength in northern italy and the emperor weakened the pope began to see that he didn't want france to grow too powerful the French king, Louis Twelfth started picking fights with the pope over the appointment of bishops, and his armies were dangerously close to Rome and successful in the field. So the pope started having second thoughts about this alliance, and he began the process of switching sides. He lifted the excommunication of Venice in 1510, and then he formally signed a peace treaty with the Venetians. And then this turned into a full-blown alliance against the French, which was known as the Holy League. Eventually, the Pope convinced the Emperor Maximilian and King Henry VIII of England to join the anti-French alliance. He likewise engaged the Swiss to provide a stable force of mercenaries to help support the papal armies and to help patrol the city of Rome and keep order there. Now, this is an interesting thing to point out. Other popes going back to Pope Julius' uncle, Sixtus IV, had to employ the Swiss, but Pope Julius's arrangement was for a permanent force of Swiss to serve as his personal guard, and that's the origin of the Swiss guard as we know them today. Now these wars are going to continue, but we need to take a break here because though Julius II pursued a vigorous foreign policy, he likewise undertook an incredibly ambitious policy towards the city of Rome itself. The most important part of which was the demolishing and reconstruction of St. Peter's Basilica. Due to decades of neglect, especially during the Avignon Papacy and the structure's thousand year history, the ancient Constantinian Basilica was in really bad shape. So many holes had been punched in the sides to make new chapels that the Basilica was itself tilting a little bit to the side. Now, Julius II was a man of bold action and big ideas, and he decided that this shabby, 1,000-year-plus-old church needed to be refreshed and on a grand scale. Included in this planned construction would be a massive monumental tomb for himself, right on top of or next to St. Peter's tomb, and sculpted by the greatest sculptor alive, Michelangelo. The tomb was never completed as planned, but you can still see portions of it in the Church of St. Peter's in Chains, with the famous Michelangelo sculpture of Moses adorning it. So the Pope found an architect to help build this monumental church to hold his monumental tomb, and he found the great Donato Bramante, who was as bold and vigorous as himself. His plan was to take the most incredible architectural feat of the old Roman world, the Dome of the Pantheon, which today we're still not sure how they did that back then, And then he's going to take that and put it on top of four massive pillars. It was going to be an immense structure, fitting the papacy of Julius II and his own tomb, and fitting his own grand personality. The cost of the church, in part, would be financed by the selling of indulgences, the most lively practice of which would happen in Germany. More on that in a future episode, but that should be some pretty heavy foreshadowing. Now, construction of the new basilica started in 1506 and would take over 100 years to complete. But St. Peter's wasn't everything. Pope Julius also had a chapel in the Vatican, which needed to be decorated. It was a chapel which his uncle had built and is thus known today as the Sistine Chapel. And in order to have the chapel painted, he hired Michelangelo again to paint the ceiling. And we all know what came of that arrangement. That's also probably, if you've ever seen Pope Julius II depicted in art, you've seen it in the video about uh, the movie about the painting of the Sistine Chapel, The Agony and the Ecstasy, with Charlton Heston playing Michelangelo. Likewise, the Pope wanted to paint his own chambers, and so he hired the artist Raphael to paint those. And that's the other major stop for a visitor to the Vatican museums today. So two of the most spectacularly decorated rooms in the Vatican were done by the patronage of Pope Julius II. Now, also in Rome, he laid out new streets to ease congestion overcrowding, to be a new center for banking and commerce, and today that is now known as the Via Giulia, after Pope Julius II. Pope Julius sponsored many other Renaissance refurbishments of Rome, but his activities at St. Peter and especially the Sistine Chapel will be the things that outlast him the most. Now, despite his own ruthless mentality and lack of personal chastity and charity, Pope Julius II also contributed to the Reform Movement in Rome. And this brings us back to our war narrative. When the Pope turned against the French, the French turned against the Pope, and they decided to strike against him by calling a council at Pisa to depose him. The Pope responded by calling his own ecumenical council in Rome, which will go down in history as the Fifth Lateran Council. We don't have too many more ecumenical councils left to talk about, so this is a big deal. The French council wasn't well attended. It did formally depose the Pope, and it caused a minor schism in the Church. The Pope wanted to respond by just deposing the French king and giving France to Henry VIII, but he didn't do it because he didn't think he could actually manage carrying it off. So instead, he just excommunicated France and all the cardinals sympathetic to the King of France. Later in the f- Lateran V, meanwhile, went on to do some good, promoting sig- significant reforms for the Church. But the problem was that most of the decrees in the Council were never implemented. The Council didn't close before the end of Pope Julius II's papacy. And when it does close, there was no action on the things that it said that needed to be done. It was too little too late, and as we will see next episode, reform is about to become a huge issue. Which brings us back to France. In the war that resulted between the Holy League and France, the Pope had victory. France was driven completely out of Italy, and the papal forces were often led by the Pope himself. He was truly a warrior Pope, so much so that he made Michelangelo put a sword in his hand when he sculpted him rather than a book, saying he was no scholar. One historian from the time said of him, he would would have been a Pope worthy of the highest renown if the care and diligence he showed in glorifying the Church in the temporal sphere and through the art of war, had been used to glorify it in the spiritual sphere through the arts of peace. But after that success, he was unable to turn his attention to the spiritual sphere because his time was up. He died on February 20th, 1513 at the Vatican and was buried in St. Peter's Basilica, though not with his giant tomb that he had planned. He was succeeded by Pope Leo X. If you thought this episode had a lot going on, just wait till next week. Thank you for listening to Abemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Link podcast at CatholicLink.org or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you and God bless you.